Hey, everybody. Come on over here. It's the Northern Miner Podcast. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. And we have a terrific show for you this week. We have the president of Barrett Gold, Kelvin Dushnitsky. He appeared at our Canadian Mining Symposium in London last week. And he also accepts the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award on behalf of Peter Monk. And he uh, is interviewed by Kerry McRury from Canaccord. We'll also have Anthony Vaccaro pop in here for a uh, announcement on our next event coming up in June. And I'll also go through the uh, commodities with a bit of news from each one. But first, let's thank our sponsors of the podcast. Number one is the Yukon Mining Alliance. There are 17 companies that are involved in exploration, development, and mining in the Yukon. A great place to go if you want to know anything about the Yukon, especially the juniors, is th- go to their website at Yukon Mining Alliance, where they compile everybody's activities and um, investor presentations and things like that. And uh, more immediately, their Twitter feed is very good, Invest Yukon, at Invest Yukon, all one word. And then our second podcast sponsor is the Grasso Group out of Vancouver. That's led by Joe Grasso uh, with all his Argentina experience. And there are three main companies with all commodities covered here, is a blue sky uranium, with uranium, of course, golden arrow resources with the precious metals, and Argentina lithium and energy, especially with the lithium up in the northwest there. And you can go for more information to their website, grossogroup.com, which will link to all three companies. Now, it's uh, just Friday evening here. The markets have closed on May 4th, and the commodities are getting pretty interesting here. We've got crude uh, is the big commodity this week. It is approaching $70. The issue there is whether um, the Trump administration stays in or pulls out of the 2015 Iranian nuclear deal, and the deadline there is May 12th, so uh, we'll keep an eye on that one. Brent is already well over $70. It's uh, approaching $75 in the futures market. And if we turn over to the precious metals, they're all uh, not so good. They've all kind of slipped since mid April, and gold presently uh, 1315, holding above 1300 still. The charts for all the five precious metals all look the same, all descending from mid uh, April. Now, silver is at 1650, platinum 910, palladium 964, rhodium 1850. So, uh, a little off on the precious metals, but hanging in there. One interesting thing I've never really known what to make of the gold silver ratio. But uh, some people find it a leading indicator. I'm not really sure. But the gold-silver ratio is once again trading near its historical 10-year highs. It's up around 80. So um, we'll see if it can resolve itself down to the uh, 60 range. The uh, World Gold Council has come out with some numbers for the first quarter in gold. And kind of going sideways here, their headline is uh, Soft Start to 2018 with Q1 demand down 7%. In particular, 
the gold demand of 973.5 tons was the lowest first quarter since 2008. And they say the main cause was a fall in investment demand for gold bars and gold-backed ETFs, partly due to range-bound gold prices. And the um, bar and coin investment was particularly weak in China, Germany, and the U.S. Jewelry demand steady, which is good. China and U.S. jewelry is up, as opposed to Indian jewelry, which is down. Central banks bought 116.5 tons of gold. That's up 42% year-over-year. Interesting there. Technology demand is up 4% year-over-year. Total supply was up 3% in the first quarter, uh, but it's primarily due to a modest increase in producer hedging. Mine production was fractionally higher at 770 tons in the first quarter. So we still haven't quite hit peak gold. I always think even the word peak gold has a bit of bias. You could call plateau gold, but I think we're definitely hitting the plateau. This was an interesting little gold headline. You have the Egyptian billionaire, Naguib Sawaris. This is from a Bloomberg article interview. Uh, he's taking half of his $5.7 billion net worth and putting it into gold. He believes gold prices are going to reach 1800 per ounce uh, while the overvalued stock markets crash. Uh, he says, in the end, you have China, and they will not stop consuming. And people also tend to go to gold during crises, and we are full of crises right now. Look at the Middle East and the rest of the world, and Mr. Trump doesn't help. Interesting. If Canadians would rem may remember Sawaris, he was the fellow behind the uh, Yak and uh, Windmobile play here in Canada, which was great for bringing in uh, cheap uh, mobile telephones. I, I myself have been a customer. But um, he left Canada. He was denied the takeover of uh, Allstream. He was trying to buy Allstream from Manitoba Telecom Services. That was back in... Um, 2013, a $520 million transaction. And, uh, part of that was because he's a um, developer of telecoms in uh, North Korea. So part of that was a national security um, objection by the Canadian government. But uh, who knows really what's going on there with telecom competition in Canada. But he's when he left Canada, he said, I'm finished with Canada. The world is big and my money can go anywhere. Uh, so there's a name from the past. And let me see here. We have some other bit of news. And uh, the other part of the big news in commodities are those uh, tariffs that have been threatened. It's hard to tell what is a threat and what is a true lasting tariff, but the steel and aluminum tariffs in the U.S., this is 25% um, on steel and 10% on aluminum. It's, it's primarily aimed at China. This week we had a month-long extension on tariff exemptions for Canada, Mexico, and the European Union. So as you can imagine, Canada is trying to get a permanent exemption. Uh, some of it is being tied to reductions of tariffs on cars from the uh, European Union. Uh, it's hard to tell what's going on there. Still lots in flux. But South Korea has been given an exemption after they had uh, quotas, I think, on their car exports. And uh, Argentina, Australia, and Brazil are, are also uh, looking at a permanent exemption. And the aluminum markets, which were roiled so much with that those sanctions imposed on Russell, it's quieting down a bit as uh, U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin is getting a bit more conciliatory and talking about lifting sanctions on Russell. That depends on uh, Oleg Deripaska reducing his stake, which may be done, and he's already offered to cut his holdings in EN Group at the London-listed 
parent company of Roussel. You can kind of imagine them doing a, you know, like the way Putin resigned briefly for as president for uh, eight years, whatever it was, but still controlled the uh, country. Oleg could uh, sort of pretend to sell a stake somehow and still control it in the, in the background. That would solve that uh, problem for Roussel. So we'll see what happens there. And just an aluminum statistic that jumped out at me from the CRU uh, CRU conference in London last week. It's just about aluminum demand. Since 2009, aluminum demand is up 45% worldwide. So incredible uh, demand increase there when you think about the other commodities. And this was an article by Jesse Snyder. This is a Canadian story. It's about Bill C-49. It's trying to modernize the uh, Transportation Act and Ottawa relates to the um, rail uh, system, and there's the Canadian Transportation Agency. So this, uh, we had senators in Ottawa wanting to grant more authority to the Transportation Agency to intervene in, intervene in disputes between shippers and carriers and give shippers the right to present cost analyses during final arbitration. Uh, you had a collection of industry, uh, chemistry producers, forestry companies, mining people, of course, and in this case, it's the, um, I should say, the two rail giants are the Canadian National Railway and the Canadian Pacific Railway, the long-time Canadian uh, rail giants. I just thought this was interesting. This is the Mine Association of Canada, the president and CEO, Pierre Graton, who's usually very uh, conciliatory and, and um, diplomatic. He, uh, he's clearly lost it here. <laughs> but he, he said, the whole system, this is quoted in the article, the whole system is in complete and utter disrepair because of railway behavior and railway choices, and the minister goes and supports the railways over shippers. It's absolutely mind-boggling. They talk about uh, Graton had been broadly supportive of the act, but really wanted these two amendments. And he says, uh, they essentially neutered it, they strengthened the hand of the government, and in doing so weakened the independence of the agency. We would have rather they had done absolutely nothing. So the uh, strong words there from the head of the MAC, Pierre Graton. This story, uh, this is just pretty kooky here, uh, and it's not going to last very long. I'd completely forgotten about this man. Is Don Blankenship. He was the CEO of Massey Energy. If you remember, they had, remember, they had this terrible um, coal mine accident uh, in 2010. Uh, 29 people died in West Virginia at the Montcoal uh, Met Coal mine in uh, West Virginia. He was put in jail um, for a year. It was a misdemeanor. That was a, like a maximum penalty. So uh, a rich elite actually went to jail in the U.S. It's very unusual. So he has reappeared. He still has, I think, one more week on his um, release uh, terms. But uh, he is actually running for Senate in West Virginia. <laughs> and there's a primary. It all goes down next Tuesday. And he's one of uh, a band of people running. Now, Blankenship had quite a bad reputation even before the mine explosion in 2010. Uh, there had been a profile of him in the Rolling Stone. He was called the Dark Lord of Coal Country. You know, the coal, Appalachian coal is its not like the Canadian mining industry. It's its much harsher. They, you know, a lot of the miners are making minimum wage, and uh, there's a cycle of poverty between generations, and uh, it's just a nastier business than uh, you think of the, uh, the gold mines in uh, the Abitibi or something, where the miners are making $100,000 and, you know, safe conditions and everything. But this campaign has gotten uh, pretty kooky here. Uh, I guess he's in some ways inspired by Trump's run for the presidency, but there was this commercial, 
and it's interesting because he's taking aim at Mitch McConnell, who's the Kentucky senator and the leader in the Senate for the Republicans. And there's an ad here. I'll have to link to it in our uh, podcast notes. But he says, uh, Swamp Captain Mitch McConnell has created millions of jobs for China people. Uh, while doing so, Mitch has gotten rich. In fact, his China family has given him tens of millions of dollars. Now, that's uh, referring to Mitch McConnell's wife, uh, Elaine Chow. She's the um, transportation secretary in the U.S., and her parents came from Taiwan uh, 60 years ago and started a uh, shipping company in New York. Of course, they got back to, uh, reporters got back to Blankenship about this and um, this kind of language about China people. Blankenship responded saying, they've always said about me and West Virginia people, is West Virginia people racist? We're confused on our staff as to how it can be racist when there's no mention of a race. There's no race. Races are Negro, white, Caucasian, Hispanic, Asian. There's no mention of a race. I've never used a race word. So <laughs> that uh, uh, prompted the um, McConnell's political advisor, Josh Holmes, to compare Blankenship to the uh, that failed GOP Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore. And Josh Holmes, uh, he tweeted out, for those asking, this is my response to West Virginia's Roy Moore. This clown is a walking, talking case study for the limitation of a prison's ability to rehabilitate. And you also had uh, Donald Trump Jr. chipping in uh, with a tweet, I hate to lose, so I'm going to go out on a limb here and ask the people of West Virginia to make a wise decision and reject Blankenship. No more fumbles like Alabama. We need to win in November. And, yeah, of course, the Republicans are up 51 to 49 in the uh, U.S. Senate. Now, that West Virginia seat is quite vulnerable. You've got Joe Manchin there. He's a Democrat, very pro-coal, but uh, Trump won handily um, that state by 42 percentage points, very large margin. So the the Republicans feel that seat's quite vulnerable. And he himself uh, has asserted that the mine disaster was caused by federal mine safety regulators and then covered up by the Justice Department, uh, and apparently that resonates with some people. And the, another item is that he actually lives in Las Vegas after getting out of prison, lives in Las Vegas, doesn't actually live in West Virginia at the moment. So in polling, he uh, th- comes in third at the moment, so it sounds like he won't make it past that primary on Tuesday, and the whole thing will disappear after that. Now let's bring in our publisher, Anthony Vaccaro. He's going to tell us about a new event the Northern Miners putting on in Toronto next month. Thanks, John. Yeah, we're uh, we're doing something around Diamonds in Canada. It's been a very popular magazine the Northern Miners published over the years. So this year we've decided to do a magazine launch and investor luncheon. So a launch and lunch, as it were, or as it will be. And uh, we're quite honored again to get incredible support from the industry. For this event, Ira Thomas will be coming in from Vancouver, CEO of Lucara Diamonds. I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with who Ira is. Nice actual piece on her in the, the Toronto Star I saw there today. Uh, Gren Thomas will also be there, chairman of North Arrow Minerals and father of Ira. And we'll also have Matt Manson coming, who's the president and CEO of Stornoway Diamond. So quite an impressive uh, list of executives that are really driving the diamond industry, not only in Canada, uh, but abroad, given Lucara's great success in Botswana. So we're looking forward to it. It is going to be um, invite only. It's, it's a more of an investor thing, but there are some sponsorship opportunities to get into the door. We're keeping it quite intimate. There'll be a excellent lunch served, a great networking opportunity, and there'll be coverage in the Northern Miner. And we're excited to to launch Diamonds in Canada. Thank you, Anthony. 
Now we're going to return after this break with the interview with Kelvin Dushnitsky. He's first introduced uh, by Anthony Vaccaro. This is all happening in London. And then uh, he will be interviewed by Canaccord Genuity's Kerry McGrury. He's their director of research of metals and mining. And you may be more familiar with his name at TD Securities. He was there for 11 years, but he moved over about four months ago to Canaccord. And we'll return with Kelvin uh, after this. Roughly uh, a month ago, uh, we all suffered a great loss to our industry, to the business community, uh, internationally, and to Canada as a country. Um, a visionary that helped build the world's largest gold company. A philanthropist that's amongst Canada's top benefactors to hospitals and universities. An infectious personality that inspired his team to be creative and de demand the most of themselves. And a patriot who didn't come to Canada until he was 20 years old and yet did more for Canada than many people that were, that were born there. But words can only fall short when trying to capture the magnitude of the life that was lived as Peter Monk lived his. So let's take a few minutes and we'll turn to pictures in the hopes that some of Peter's enduring light can be captured. Well, thank you, Anthony, uh, and good morning. That was a very nice slide presentation, by the way. It, it's truly an honor for me uh, to accept this award on behalf of Peter Monk, and I can tell you that Peter was very proud and he was thrilled, actually, when he was notified that he'd be receiving it. Uh, when the Northern, Mining, Northern Miner called about, I don't know, several months ago, at that time Peter knew he wouldn't be able to travel here to accept the award on his behalf, so you can imagine how proud I was when he called me to ask if I would uh, accept it for him. I consider myself very fortunate to have called Peter my, my, my boss, first of all, and colleague and a friend and a mentor. Um, I worked with Peter for the better part of 15 years. I think, I think it's uh, probably fair to say for the first five or six of those, he thought I worked in the photocopier room. But, but um, in fact, it, it's funny, but he was always very polite about that. He would joke about it just before the holidays, in fact. We are kind of uh, talking about stuff, and I, I remind him about that, and he said, yeah, it's true, I did think that. And he said, and don't forget, you can still go back there pretty quickly, so be careful. <laughs> and, and by the way, I, 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 uh, I know he meant it. Um, <laughs> but when I decided to join Barrick, it was 2002, and at that time, it was an opportunity I, I knew I couldn't afford to miss. There was a buzz around the company at that time, and you couldn't go a day, it seemed, without you know, reading the uh, newspapers, the business media, and there would always be another headline. You know, Barrick makes a, a great new discovery, or Barrick makes a new acquisition, or the company reports yet another quarter of record earnings. And it was a company that was clearly on the rise, and that had everything to do with Peter himself. Uh, the company was an extension of his personality. It was bold, you know, never timid, uh, driven, unconventional, uncompromising, nimble, decisive, all the things that really characterized Peter himself. And he created a, an esprit de corps at the company which was much more akin to a family than an organization. Uh, he surrounded himself with top talent. You saw some of that in the slideshow and there, was, there were many more. 
Um, roles in the company were well-defined and understood, and he created a, an owner's culture. You know, these people, these were not managers or caretakers. They were all in all the time, and that was a reflection of Peter. From a standing start in the 80s, as the slideshow indicated, they propelled Barrick into the world's largest gold miner in a period of about 25 years, which is really remarkable when you think of it. From a business perspective, Barrick was Peter's crowning achievement, and he was absolutely devoted to the company. Now, that commitment could sometimes border on the mercurial, um, but, but I can tell you that contrary to what I think is a common misperception, Peter was always willing to listen to alternative views, even strategically about how, you know, the direction the company should go. Sometimes he'd agree, more often he wouldn't, but he never held it against anybody who took an opposing view to him, as long as he knew, and he could always tell, that you had Barrick's best interests at heart. I can say one thing, though, that he didn't have much patience for anybody, particularly anybody who presented at a Barrick board meeting who wasn't well prepared. In fact, we, as, as a management group, we used to jokingly, kind of nervously, refer to the meeting room that was outside of the boardroom. We called it the departure lounge. And the reason is because it kind of felt like you were in a, you know, an airline departure lounge waiting for a flight. But it's also because more than one executive departed the company if they had a bad presentation at the board meeting. So, so it was kind of legendary that way. But, but having said that, the rules of engagement were always very clear. They were well understood. And for Peter, it was about having people around him that were doing their very best and committed to the company. His passion for Barrick was maybe most evident at our annual general meetings. We had our AGM yesterday, in fact, and of course he was very much missed. But his speeches were legendary. He'd always come, uh, he had a, a brown leather folder, and it would be stuffed full of, of handwritten notes. They'd, he'd come to the podium, set down the leather folder, never refer to it. He'd say, I'm going to talk for five minutes, and he'd thunder on for 45 minutes, never look down. And, um, but nobody ever complained. He had a gift. Uh, I think Peter's probably the most compelling speaker I've, I've ever heard. Um, in those days, you could almost... If you, if you watched our share price, you could watch it move up as Peter was delivering his remarks at the podium. Um, I, it's a funny anecdote. Yesterday, our, our uh, um, communications director was telling me a story about how years ago, when Peter, particularly when he did uh, investor presentations, he had a habit of, as he was delivering his remarks, he'd be pretty passionate, and he'd be pounding on the, on the podium, usually glasses in one hand, and made a fist out of the other, and he'd be banging away. And it could be quite jarring, particularly for people in the front, as he was you know, pounding by the microphone. And so he never knew this, but the uh, communications guys actually created a, a foam, styrofoam pad. And before Peter spoke, they'd put it on the podium. And he never knew this. And uh, he said for years, guys like Bob Smith and the communications guys would always have a running bet, you know, when's Peter going to figure this out? And he never did. But um, until one of his last interviews, um, this happened, I think it was sometime last year, he was told about it. And the, the interviewer asked him to, to respond. And his response, and I'm going to quote, was, you know, he says, I bet those expletives, starts with a B, would have done that, he said. But I believed in what I was saying. I believed in Barrick, and I'll always believe in Barrick. And he did. Peter was just, just felt just as home, at home, in a room full of presidents and prime ministers as he did in a room full of miners. And he, he was revered by both. If you go around to virtually any mine in the Barrick family today, you'll find handwritten notes from Peter. They will have met somebody in passing and, and, and sent a note, and they're always very prominently displayed. 
and they're uh, highly valued, and that's the esteem you know, with which Peter was held around the company. And that extended beyond Barrick as well. His network of, of contacts and friends, it was just remarkable. He had a Rolodex that any head of state would be envious about. It spanned royalty, business icons, politicians, celebrities, you name it. And for us, it was available to us 24-7, 365 days of the year, if you needed anybody to advance Barrick's interests. Time zones and geography never constrained him. Once you were in his circle, you were in it for life, and you were on call for life if it had to do with Barrick. In fact, another story, his, uh, Peter's longtime um, assistant was telling a story about when she first joined, and Peter was going into a meeting, I think him and Bob Smith and some other guys, and Peter hated distractions. So if he was in a meeting, you know, God help you if you, you, you distracted him for any reason. So going in, he told, Sheila was her name, you know, not to be distracted, we're in here, and, and, and please don't let anybody bother us. Well, 15 minutes in, what happens? Phone rings, and it's the Prime Minister's office. And Brian Mulroney was the serving Prime Minister at the time, so poor Sheila's sitting here, what do we do? Five minutes in, but it's the Prime Minister. So she gingerly knocks on the door and, and opens it, and there's Peter, and he kind of scowls, you know, ab looking above his glasses like he used to, is intimidating, that look. So she goes, you know, Mr. Monk, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's the Prime Minister on the line. So Peter pauses for a second, he looks up, and he goes, which one? <laughs> which was pretty typical, actually. And, and, um, but it was, you know, such was Peter's gravitational pull. Everybody who knew him wanted to be around him all the time. But no matter how high, high he climbed, he always stayed true to who he was and what he believed in. He was committed to excellence in everything he did, gracious to everyone he met, and forever grateful to his adopted home of Canada. And he believed fervently in giving back, whether it was on a grand scale, like the $100 million personal donation that he and Melanie gave to the University um, Health Network in October. It's the biggest donation ever to a Canadian hospital. Or the thousands of scholarships funded by Barrick over time. Peter made a, a, a meaningful difference to a countless number of lives. And through those lives, and the thousands of lives those people will touch, Peter's magnificent legacy will not only live on, but it will continue to grow. So I could, I could really, I could go on and on, but Peter hated long tributes to him, and I, I almost feel his presence, like he's starting to look down and remind me that I'm still in the departure lounge and I'm still one step away from the photocopier room. So with that, I'll stop and uh, just say how proud and humbled I am to accept this Lifetime Achievement Award on behalf of my friend and industry icon and Barrick founder, Peter Monk. So thank you very much. Thank you, Calvin, for those very sound words. Um, I'd also like to point people to the fact that the, uh, the Northern Miner edition that we've brought with us here has a really well-written piece uh, by senior staff reporter Trish Saywell that goes through all of, uh, of Peter's life. And there's a nice uh, contribution from Steve Daddles that worked with, with Peter throughout his career as well. So if you haven't read those stories, definitely uh, encourage you to do, to do just that. Um, now I'd like to invite up to uh, the table uh, Carrie McCurry, who is a senior precious metals analyst for Canaccord. Carrie is going to have a, a conversation with Calvin, well, about Barrick and about wherever you want to take it, Carrie. So please. Go easy, Carrie. I had to deal with a bunch of protesters yesterday at our AGM, so hopefully you'll be a little softer. No problem. So maybe I'd start off just to set the context. I mean, clearly. Barracks had a huge transformation over the past three, four years. You know, you 
paid down a lot of debt, you've cut costs. I think you've gone from 20 plus mines to about 12. So maybe you can just talk a little bit about, you know, the accomplishments you've made. You know, it must have been a tough process. And, you know, as a smaller company now, is it easier to manage the business? Well, thank you. Um, well, first of all, thank you again for, for letting me uh, or inviting me to be here. Well, boy, going backwards, is it, does it feel easier to run the business? Not really. Um, it's, uh, it's a challenge. I think if you have one mine or 12 or 20, the, the challenges are all just a little different. But you're right. I mean, we have streamlined the business a lot over the last three years. And we are focused on our, more of our core mines, the longer life, kind of high quality, lower cost uh, mines with, with better margin, particularly in the Americas. And so that process has gone well. Uh, part of our focus has been on debt reduction. And you're, you know, you're, you're accurate. We, we started 2015 with $13.1 billion in debt. We ended this quarter at 6.4 in total debt, uh, with $2.4 billion of cash in the balance sheet. So our net debt's about $4 billion. So we're pleased with how we've been able to manage that down. In addition to improving the balance sheet, our, our liquidity is such that we only have $100 million due now before 2020. And more than 75% of our debt's very long dated post-2032. So, so we've kind of turned the corner. We feel, feel quite good about that. Um, assets are performing really well. I think you can expect to see continual focus, particularly in Nevada. Um, it's, we've got three projects, organic projects, that are underway right now in Nevada. And uh, so that's going to continue on for us. The, um, as, we, as we reduced the portfolio, we also shifted, as I think you may be aware, to a decentralized operating model. And we could only do that by streamlining the portfolio. So in essence, what we've done is we have a, a, a much smaller, tighter head office we removed the layer between the head office and the operating mines, and we've put the authority and kind of autonomy to run the mines with the GMs, and, and that's going well. Okay, I, I don't want to dwell on the past, but you know, I'm going to again go back five years or so, and it, it wasn't just Barrick. A lot of the seniors, you know, got in trouble with too much debt, and you know, costs had escalated quite a bit in the last cycle. I guess my question, you know, I get a, a lot of time from generalists, is, you know, what are the key lessons learned, particularly for Barrick, and you know, do you think it'll be different over the next cycle? Yeah. Um, well, I think the key fundamental lesson was to, you know, be careful with the balance sheet. Barrick always had for years. It was the only A-rated balance sheet in the industry. And we, uh, we made a misstep in 2010 when we used all debt to make an acquisition that, that you know, at the time was, you know, in fairness, we probably, we, we overpaid, uh, number one, and we used all debt instead of equity like we had historically. And so valuable lesson there. But generally speaking, you know, around capital allocation, um, I think one of the, what we're doing as a company to ensure we don't repeat some of the mistakes of the past is we've got, you know, firm capital allocation process in place. First time ever we've, we've, we've appointed a chief investment officer and you know, we have a firm criteria of 15% rate of return using a $1,200 gold price. Um, and with that, the projects I mentioned to you before have all met the hurdle rate. And so we're going to maintain that discipline um, and, uh, and stay focused and hopefully that'll help us prevent some of the the things that where we didn't maybe take the right direction previously. Great. So, you know, the balance sheet's now in great shape. Costs have come down quite a bit. What's the new focus for the next year or two? Is it still bringing down debt further, or are you transitioning to other things? We're, we're going to keep chipping away at the debt. I mean, it doesn't, you won't see the same level of intensity necessarily as, as we needed to in 2015 and 2016, but we've committed that we'd like to bring down our total debt to about $5 billion. We're going to target that for this year. We announced with our first with our results um, uh, yesterday that we won't use acquisition sales to further reduce our debt. If we do have any more divestments, that'll go toward the um, uh, uh, portfolio. 
um, or other returns to shareholders, perhaps increasing dividends, share buybacks, other things, share price appreciation, ideally. Right. Um, so we will continue to work on the debt, uh, but we are, we're also reinvesting in the business. And the beauty of our, our pipeline, now, I mentioned the projects already underway. Um, we just, particularly as, as I mentioned in Nevada, we're looking at expansion around PV and elsewhere. We think there's a lot of opportunity that exists in the portfolio and we'll start to capitalize on that. So I, I agree, you have a lot of brownfield expansions underway. You've also got a pretty deep pipeline of you know, big greenfield projects. You know, a lot of companies would dream to have a 20 million ounce deposit. I think you have four projects that have about 80 million ounces. I mean, you mentioned your 15% IRR target. Do you think you can get there on some of those projects, a 15% IRR at 1,200 gold on a, on a big greenfield project? It, it's certainly a challenge. There's no question about that. But, you, but you're right. Thank you. I mean, the projects we do have in the pipeline, the optionality is, is terrific. And one of the things we're looking at is how we can perhaps build those projects in, in stages. So as opposed to the swing for the fences you know, notion all at once, we can build in stages, generate cash flow, and build successive stages, which, by the way, are, are kind of marquee. The engine of growth for our company is Gold Strike, and that's exactly how Gold Strike was built. You look at it today, and you see the massive Gold Strike complex with the roaster and everything, but um, when it was built, I mean, it was the original starter pit, and then we expanded from that, generated cash flow, and you know, over the years, we, we built that project, which at the time, in fact, Ross Beattie and I were just chatting about this. When, when um, Peter and Bob Smith and everyone acquired Gold Strike, they had 600,000 ounces, and they hoped that they'd increase that to, to a million, too. And I think Gold Strike's now produced more than 45 million ounces. So to the extent we could do that, we'll also look at uh, partnerships. So for particularly some of the bigger greenfield projects, you know, we don't have to own everything. We don't have to do everything ourselves. So to the extent we can find partnerships that make sense, We've entered into a strategic relationship recently with Shandong Gold, as I think you know from China. Um, and to the extent we can kind of share risk and share technical expertise and do things together, then we'll, we'll look to do that as well. So John Thornton has talked about, you know, partnering with the Chinese and you have the, the transaction with Shandong at Veladero and I believe at Porgro at Zijin. I guess my question is, you know, what do the Chinese bring to the table? I mean, you know, you're the big are the biggest gold miner in the world. What, what, what do they really bring that Barrick doesn't have? They bring a lot of things. Um, for Shandong, as I mentioned earlier, they bring technical, technical expertise. They have great underground mining experience. I think they're China's largest underground uh, miner. Um, cost of capital, typically a little less than, than others. Um, they take a very long-term view in, uh, in, in their partnerships and looking at, at developing assets, which is, is helpful. You know, we started our relationship with Shandong about a year ago, actually, now, um, at Valadero. And we had you know, fairly high expectations for, for how the partnership would work, and in fact, it, it's exceeded them. So to the extent we could do more together, we'd, uh, we'd very much like to do that. And I think in your Q1 that came out on Monday, you talked about uh, Pascual Lama suspending doing more pre-feasibility work on that one. Again, you've got a bunch of really big projects. If they don't meet your IRR, would you consider you know, selling them, or would you wait for a better point in the cycle to, to reconsider some of these? Yeah. You know, nothing's off the table. Um, we would, we'll consider divesting, although in most instances we'll also look to see what we can do to optimize them ourselves, because the option value is so high. Um, we'll look to optimize them. But if we, you know, like I said, if we bring in a partner for some of it, then, then that could make sense. But, you know, like we said, there's no, nothing is sacred, you know, outside of the core mines in Nevada, which, you know, um, I would make that as an exception. For us, those, those probably are considered sacred. But otherwise, yeah, we would consider other alternatives. 
So overall, industry reserves, I think, for the, the large cap guys are down 20 30% over the last five years. And I think this year we, we may have seen the turn a little bit on that. Does that worry you at all, the you know, lack of discovery, the lack of reserve replacement? Uh, look, that you've, you hit on something. It is definitely an industry challenge. There's no question about that. Um, having said so, you know, this year, 2017, was a good example where candidly in 2015 and 2016, for us, it was all about debt reduction. So we weren't spending a lot of money on Minex. And, and our shareholders weren't enthusiastic about us doing that. You know, you've got $13 billion in debt, and, and at that time, a gold price that wasn't as, as cooperative as it is now, and understandably, the focus was all about debt. Now, that in 2017, though, and we, we, we were confident this would happen, and, and, and the results materialized. As we spent more money on Minex, last year, we, we um, added 8 million ounces to reserves which more than offset our 6.2 million ounces in depletion through processing. And so we're very encouraged about that. The majority, I think it's about, um, about 80% of those ounces were generated in Nevada. Um, our overall reserve grade has gone up. It's about 1.55 grams, uh, 64 million ounces in reserves, and we've got about 120, call it, million ounces in resources. So the overall mineral inventory of 184 million ounces. So. So it will continue to be a challenge. I think that we're, we're in a very good position, partly because of the geography, you know, where, we're, where our assets are located. The good thing about those reserves as well is that, you know, in many instances, you know, they're located around where we have existing infrastructure and you know, strong relationships, et cetera, i.e., again, Nevada. So, so from that perspective, um, you know, we feel in pretty good shape, but, but it will continue to be a challenge. So, you know, you've been operating in Nevada for since the 80s, and I guess Newmont as well. Are you still as confident that Nevada's got 20, 30 years ahead? Is it still, I mean, obviously it's hard to find ounces, but, you know, is it going to continue for 30 years in your view? I think way more than 30 years, yeah. I mean, we just announced as well on um, uh, yesterday with our results the um, four-mile discovery, which is an extension from Gold Rush, as you know. And gold rushes, I think we added a million and a half ounces in reserves of gold rushes, another nine and a half in resource. Of course, maybe off a little bit. But we're seeing the four mile extension from that, and we're very excited about it. Um, it looks like it may even be better grade. But, but um, you know, what we find is, I don't want to exaggerate, but it's almost like wherever we start looking and, and you know, drilling holes in Nevada, we're, we're finding things. So I think 30 years is. is just a tip of the iceberg. I think, uh, you know, the barracks of the world and others will be there a lot longer than that. I guess one thing in the sector these days, I mean, the valuations are, you know, relatively cheap relative to where the gold price is. Um, does Barrick look at, you know, rather than building production, you know, taking advantage of, you know, using your deep skill set to go out and actually buy assets and maybe apply, you know, your, your higher skill set? Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because every opportunity is, is, is a little different. You know, do you build, do you, do you buy? Um, we certainly have been looking. In mean, 2017, there was, you know, we, we, we looked a lot, actually, but we passed. There was nothing that actually was sufficiently compelling to us uh, last year. Um, we do have, we've set quite a high crossbar because whatever we look at has to compete with the internal pipeline. And so, um, you know, we will we'll continue to look. And if we find something that's compelling, to be compelling, it has to have, you know, the ability to generate, you know, strong free cash flow, long life, and ideally it has to have a strategic fit of some sort. So it's less likely, you shouldn't expect us to see, you know, to see us chasing kind of shiny objects in far off jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, kind of been there, done that. But um, but no, we're, we're we're looking. If there's the right opportunity, then we would uh, we capitalize on it. So you've still got a pretty big copper business, 450 million pounds of copper production, which is you know pretty sizable. Is that still core to the business, or you know in a better copper market, do you divest that? Well, you know we've always said that the, the copper assets they're not core, but they are highly valuable, and particularly with you know current copper prices. So one thing that we won't do is use our you know gold. Um, uh, revenues to fund the copper business. We'll do the opposite, but you know, we are a gold company, and so um, that's the approach we'll take. We'll continue to work on on the uh, copper assets. The, we like the portfolio, but it's not sacred. If something, you know, if there was an opportunity to do something that made sense for our shareholders, and we could reinvest back into the gold business, then we'd consider it. But at this point, you know, we're pleased. We put a lot of work into the copper assets, and you know, it's paying dividends now. So. Okay, um, John Thorne also talked about philosophically of getting to zero debt. You know, is that realistic for a company of your size? You know, 15-odd billion market cap. Obviously, it's a capital-intensive business. Do you want to finance 100% cash flow? Or you know, how do you think about that going forward? Yeah, you know, I think that, as I indicated, our target uh, is to get to $5 billion in, in total debt for, for Dow. We'll chip away and get to there, and then, then we'll wait for a bit. Um, again, because the $5 billion happens to be due after 2032. So we've got $100 million, I think, due before, between now and 2020, and then after that, it really drops off. So I think what, what John's referring to is, I mean, aspirationally, yes, we'd love to have no debt. I think that we'll be in a position where we won't have corporate debt. We could take on project debt from time to time if it makes sense to do so. So I think that's how I'd respond to it. Okay, maybe I'll just touch back on Peter Monk. I mean, you, you spoke about uh, your time there. What, are, what would you say the top two things that are still, you know, instilled in the organization that you would have left behind? Oh, boy. You know, there's a lot more than two things. I, I really, I can honestly say his, his imprint is indelible. Like, it, it will remain long after we're gone. Um, but I think a couple of things. First, the focus on, on financial discipline. Um, it, you know, the, I think... If you ask Peter, and if he could go back, the one thing that he would never have done twice is using debt for the acquisition that we did in, in 2010. And so financial discipline is something that was always, always, uh, always drove him. Um, and I think the other thing with Peter probably is um, he, he had a, a real focus. He had attention to detail really mattered. And I think that you can get kind of caught up and swept away in things and, and, and lose focus. And he was very, very focused. And so I think that if you, in terms of the company's DNA, what I hope we preserve on a going forward basis will be that, you know, the, uh, an obsession with ensuring that we're in strong financial position and, you know, run the business with that kind of, that discipline and attention to detail. Those are two things that kind of strike out, you know, with me as, as things that drove Peter. And another thing you've, you know, Barrick has been a leader in the last couple of years is this whole digitization movement technology. Can you talk about some of the things that you're doing there, you know, some of the bigger ideas that you think have potential to kind of turn the dial? Yeah. You know, it, it, we're using, as, as you probably know, we, we focused on Nevada and particularly Cortez and Goldstrike as, the, um, as our uh, kind of prototype for, for digitization and, and, and other innovation. And some of the things that have been really effective is um, improving short interval control. So in essence, knowing where people and equipment are at all times. You know, we used to have shift changes where you'd basically fill up forms and triplicate. And, um, and what we're finding is you know, you'd go shift or go down, expect to see equipment somewhere. They wouldn't find it or it'd be you know, broken and in, in disrepair. And now by being able to track at all times where people are, where equipment is, you know, sensors on the equipment, so we, it's the uh, maintenance is, is, is much improved. 
you know, we're seeing productivity increases significantly in Nevada, and that's just the first step. We're now exporting that elsewhere. Better maintenance, predictive management, and, and, and um, other pieces like that. I mean, we're, we're going to continue to kind of work on it, drive down, drive down our costs. Now, a lot of the autonomous underground equipment things that we're doing, this is not groundbreaking. I mean, others have been doing this for, for a long time. The Australian companies, for example, have been leaders in this area. So we're adopting it now, so it's, it's new to us. It doesn't mean it's necessarily, uh, like, as I said, groundbreaking for the industry, but for our company, we're, we're making good strides. Do you think we'll see a fully automated mine in the near future? Oh, I'm sure we will. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost, I, I would bet on it. What, what yeah. sort of time frame? Ooh, now you're testing me. I can tell you this, I mean, one of the advantages um, in terms of what we've been going through now and being, you know, you don't have to be, you, you can be a, a fast adopter as opposed to, you know, having to invent everything at home. We're looking at gold rush in terms of what we can do to automate and be as kind of 21st century as possible with the new gold rush development. And so I think that's going to be interesting for us. Will it be fully automated? We'll see, but um, we'll take it as far as we can. And then maybe just one last question. You know, nobody in the industry obviously hedges anymore, but, uh, you know, if you had, again, in a project development sense, you know, the forward curve today, I think, goes up to 1,500, would you not look at potentially, for, you know, hedging out three to five years in a, for a new project to kind of lock in the economics? No. No? No. We've, we've been there, done, learned our lesson on hedging. Look, I get it. I mean, if, I, if you're a, uh, if you're a smaller company, you've got, you know, one asset or two assets or a single project, you know, a project hedge, to, uh, to make sure that you, know, you don't get caught in, in that falling commodity price. I, I completely get that and understand it. I think it's, I think it's a great idea. From our perspective, our balance sheet's strong. Um, we, we, we wouldn't need to hedge to build. I mean, the four projects I talked about at $1,200 gold, we'll build those all out of cash flow. Um, and so, no, we wouldn't hedge on a project or, or hedge overall. But it's not saying I don't understand why other companies would. And I, I think it makes a lot of sense in other circumstances. But... But no, I'll, I'll go on the record to say that Barrick's not going to be hedging. Actually, I'm going to sneak in one more question. Um, you know, the, a, lot of, a lot of the seniors now, it seems that, you know, flat is the new up. You know, does growth matter anymore? Well, I think it, I think it matters. I think it's always mattered. Uh, you know, there was a point in time when, you know, as we came out of the last cycle and a lot of companies were caught with large capital projects and capital overruns, and there was a sentiment then that, you know, don't talk to us about growth because really that means overspending on projects. I think well-managed projects and growth is in, within that context is, is essential. It's the only way the business is going to survive. So I, I do think it's important, and I think measured, steady, kind of sure and steady and reliable growth is what matters. Okay, great. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. enjoyed that interview with Calvin Dushnitsky. Next week, I'm going to have a podcast interview with Frank Holmes from U.S. Global Investors. We're going to talk uh, macro for sure with uh, Frank, and see you then. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.